look again at uh, James uh, chapter 4 this time. <clears throat> if you got your Bibles with you. Uh, a while back, uh, I read about an article about a church that in the, was in the south that no longer exists due in part to an incident that took part uh, took place on Potluck Sunday. It seems that a, a new family came to that church for a few Sundays, and they decided to take part in their first potluck at that church. The wife had prepared her family's favorite red gelatin salad, and she took it to the kitchen before the church service, and then she returned to the service as we usually do, and everybody when they go to potluck. As soon as the pastor said amen, the people proceeded to the fellowship hall to line up to fill their plates with their favorite dishes. When the new family's turn came around uh, to fill their plate, the husband asked his wife, he says, where's our salad? And she said she really didn't know, but she would go back into the kitchen and find out where it was. She arrived just in time to witness one of the older saints dumping the last of her salad down the garbage disposal. What are you doing? Uh, asked the newcomer. That's my salad. Without batting an eye, the other woman looked up and said to her, You're new here. You'll soon learn that we only use real whipped cream around here, not Cool Whip. <laughs> that one incident started a church battle that erupted into an all-out war and eventually destroyed that church. And this is a true story. Uh, so I hope you're not planning on bringing any dessert with Cool Whip on it. <laughs> Just kidding, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I guess there's one set up for the 30th, if I remember right on the bulletin there. Don't bring cool. Well, James, uh, James continues his uh, theme here in this portion of Scripture that we're going to look at today about fights, quarrels, conflicts among believers, believe it or not. But today he's going to go to the heart of the problem. The last time we... I uh, looked at James, it was in May, 1st of May, first, 7th of May actually, the first Sunday. We covered those f- first three verses in chapter 4, uh, where he mentions uh, the surface problem of war uh, with each other. And that was caused by selfishness or sometimes our selfish motives within us. But now he goes a little deeper. Uh, let's put these verses into context as, context as we look starting at verse 1 today through 10, and in chapter 4. And remember, folks, that James is writing to believers. A lot of times we think, well, that's good for the non-believer. This is to believers in his day, and I believe it can apply to us today. As believers, people who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust that's most of us here today, if not all of us. So let's stand as we look at James chapter 4, 1 through 10, and we'll read that. And this is reading out of the New American Standard, James 4, 1 through 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in you and in your members? Excuse me, in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And he will exalt you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you 
for your word. We don't like sometimes what it says, God, tell you the truth. It's kind of rough on us. But God, you put it there. Maybe we need to be roughed up once in a while. We pray, God, that our hearts, our ears, are that we're open to you. Lord, uh, just speak through me to each person here. I don't care how young they are or how old they are. You've got something for them today. If we just take it to heart, we just listen for your voice. We just thank you, God, for your word again, how it speaks to us and how it has through thousands of years. And it still speaks to us today. Lord, it's relevant if we just listen in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, folks. To dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. I don't know where I learned that years ago, but there's some truth to it, isn't it? We're looking forward to when we get home with the Lord, and that will be glory. But to rub elbows with the ones down here, that's a little tougher. It's where the rubber meets the road. Well, James gets right to the root of the problem here in uh, these verses 4 through 10. And that is, really, we are at war with God when we are at war with each other. It's a spiritual problem. The war on the outside is just an overflow of his war that's on the inside with God. It's a fight for, for first place. It's a fight for first place. You might ask, is it possible for believers to be at war with God? What could possibly make us an enemy of God to, so that we would be at war with him? James says it's simple. Friendship with the world would do that. Compromising our commitment to Christ results in a hostile relationship with God. Compromising our commitment. And James calls it committing spiritual adultery. You adulteresses, he says in verse 4. Strong language, but language that we can all understand, I'm sure. We all know what adultery is. What I've noticed about James is, we've been looking through it for a while, is he hits on sins that a lot of times we don't think about as sins, such as the sin of lust in chapter 1. He says, it's uh, don't say you're tempted by God, you're tempted, you're carried away by your own lust that's within you, he said. Chapter 2, he talks about the sin of partiality a lot of times. We don't think about we hold one person above the other, no matter in how they dress or the status they have, how much money they got, as they bring it apart, as he uses the illustration here in chapter 2. Chapter two, uh, 3, he talks about the sins of the tongue. And we can all think about that. We all fail in that. Gossip, slander, whatever, whatever. You know, and the list goes on. Sins of the tongue, he talks about. These are sins he's talking about. Sins that sometimes we don't even think about. And now, friendship with the world, he calls that sin of adultery. Pretty strong. As you recall in the New Testament, in the New Testament church, is likened to the bride of Christ. We can all agree there. And Jesus represents the bridegroom. We see that in Revelation chapter 18, verse 33, and also in the Gospel of John. Jesus uses a couple of parables. Talks about him being the bridegroom, we're the bride. When we surrender our lives to Christ, we're united with him, as in a marriage, till death do us part. And James is speaking to believers here, and they're believers of infidelity, when we have, when which we have turned, he he terms it as adulteresses. How does that happen? How does that happen? Usually, it's slowly, and it's subtly. Now, most of us can recall the bliss of marriage, can't we? A promise of fidelity. Two people look into each other's eyes, speaking those vows sincerely, with great reverence on our wedding days. Single-minded devotion to one another. We're, we're bent on one another. We devote ourselves to one another. And then in many cases, sad to say, one out of two marriages end in divorce today, but sad to say, through the years, slowly that devotion begins to wane. And uh, romance begins to fade. It can happen. The flowers and those little notes 
to express our ongoing love for one another just seem to be a distant memory. And in the eyes of your spouse, you no longer feel treasured. You no longer feel adored or prized as you once were. And soon, an awful realization occurs. You catch yourself thinking about it, and then maybe even whispering it out loud. I think there's someone else. And could it be an affair going on here? A worldly term, God calls it adultery. And once you've affirmed that idea that perhaps it's going on, the an awful realization occurs. You catch yourself thinking, it can't be true. You feel angry, used, passed by, cast off. You feel the pain that's in, within your chest. That it won't go away with just a couple of aspirin. As you realize, you're not in first place any longer. You've been there? Some of you have been there. Some of us have been there. James says that a believer can inflict that same kind of pain in God's heart. The pain of rejection. The new believer who comes to Christ is like that newlywed. He or she makes promises to God. I'll follow you, Lord, no matter what. Come what may, I'll follow you. I'll love, honor, obey you, Lord, the rest of my life, no matter what. Because you're everything to me. You're everything. But in time, after the honeymoon is over, more or less we come down to earth. We suffer a few lumps and bumps, bruises and disappointments, trials, testings. Your devotion to the Lord begins to waver. And when you discover how much God is asking of you, your time, your talents, your tokens, so to speak, your entire self, you count the cost of what it means to be loyal to the Lord every day, every hour, every minute of that day, and it's too high. You're just asking too much, Lord. Plus, you're weakened by what the world offers and the lifestyle of godless people who are all around you. It's enticing. So gradually, subtly, you no longer love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And you love serving the Lord seems to interfere with other plans, pleasures. Worship is forced at times. Our mind begins to wander during the worship service. Church interferes with the things that we'd rather be doing on Sundays. So we skip church. Nothing happens. We didn't get struck with lightning. So we try it again. When something else exciting comes up that the world has to offer. Daily devotions aren't as regular as they once were. Prayer, only in crisis times. Bible study gets tougher and tougher to do. And before we know it, our roving eye has led us into spiritual adultery with the mistress of this world and the world system. We are so deceived by now that we cannot understand why God seems so distant from us. In fact, we might even pray, Lord, what happened to our relationship? You used to be so close, but now so far away. Are you even listening to me any any longer, Lord? Can you even hear me? Check out Isaiah 59.2. It says that sometimes our iniquities, our sins, will block God's hearing. James says the problem is friendship with the world. A friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And John seems to echo those similar words in 1 John. Excuse me. Get some water here. 1 John chapter uh, 2, verse 15. John writes, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you remember Paul writing, and some of us have memorized this verse, 12.2 in Romans, that the pastor will be eventually get to. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's where it starts. Do not be conformed to this world. J.P. Phillips, J.B. Phillips, excuse me, paraphrases Romans 12, 2, and here is how he says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. To be honest, we can't live. We can't do business in this world without rubbing shoulders, without rubbing elbows with those who are driven by the world's desires, who have the world's values strive towards the world's values. What's those desires? What's those values? The world system feeds on four things, folks. You'll see it in your outline there. Four things the world system feeds on. Pretty much. Money or materialism, whichever we want to say, what money can buy. Fame or popularity, the world system. Number three, power, trying to get a little bit higher in their job no matter if they have to step on someone. And number four, pleasure. The world says, if it feels good, do it. Four things, money, fame, power, and pleasure. Remember, folks, the world's values and God's values are completely opposite. The world builds up its treasures here on this earth. But God says he wants us to build up our treasures in heaven. Have you ever thought about what would that be? Simple. It's people. People will live forever. They're going to go one place or the other. So we invest our time and our talents, our tokens or whatever it takes into people. They will last forever. Build up forever. If you can influence one people, one person for the Lord Jesus Christ, and they make it to heaven, praise the Lord. That's a treasure. You've done. You've done your job. As born-again Christians, we need to constantly fight against these four temptations that the world offers, the world's idols. Money, fame, materialism, popularity, power, pleasure. James goes on in verse 5 from the Living Bible. Here's how he puts it. Or what do you think the scripture means when it says that the Holy Spirit whom God has placed within us, praise the Lord, watches over us? over us with tender jealousy. That's from the Living Bible. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, he says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. God says, you can't say that you're devoted to me. You can't say that you love me with your whole heart and soul and mind and still have an affair with this world. Who are you kidding? Folks, God purchased us with a great sacrifice to himself. As we all know. Therefore, he wants us solely for himself. God is a jealous God. He wants our total devotion, total allegiance, total commitment as in a marriage. So let me ask you this morning. Is your devotion, your allegiance divided today? Are you compromising By the way, have you ever made it known to your circle of friends, people you work with, people you do business with, where you stand spiritually? It can be costly. I had such a thing happen to me a couple weeks ago. I had a a regular hay customer come in, and he wanted a couple ton of hay. And as he was loading this hay, Lou told somewhat of this story at a Bible study the other night. As he was loading the hay, he mentioned to me, or his wife was there too, he mentioned that he was going in for a colonoscopy the following day. He was there on a Monday. He was going Tuesday for this colonoscopy. He said once I went to the doctor and they diagnosed that I had uh, leukemia. And I was pretty shook up, he says. And so then I went for further tests and found out I didn't have it. But I could tell he mentioned it two or three times that he was going in for this colonoscopy because the doctor had said that he better do it. He said some of his tests showed that he better have this done. So, 
I took it upon myself. I didn't ask. Lou said in her little story, she said that I asked. I did not ask. I just said, when he got all loaded with hay, and he said, now this is true, he said, I'll be back tomorrow for that other three, another three ton of hay, but he said, I'm having this done. I'll be back Wednesday. This is Monday. So I said, well, why don't we have a little word of prayer before you leave? And, uh, you know, I didn't ask him if he wanted a word of prayer. I just said, let's have some prayer about this test, this colonoscopy. So we did, just a little short prayer, nothing. I didn't think much of it except the fact it was I really prayed that God would help him come through these tests with no problem because, like I say, I, I thought he was a little uptight about it. Well, anyway, the bottom line is that uh, uh, come what men, Wednesday, uh, he never showed up. And Thursday, no show. Friday, no show. Saturday, I called him. And I said, uh, do you still want some hay? And it was a recording. Monday, he got back to me. The following Monday, a whole week later. And uh, he says, I won't be needing any more hay. Well, I knew he needed I knew how many horses he had he needed more hay, but he might have found a better price. But Lou says to me as I hang up the phone, could it be that uh, was that a little prayer you had with him? He says, he thought you were a Bible thumper or something, you know. And he says, I don't need to hear this when I come. So I asked him at the same time, I said, well, how did you come out on your colonoscopy? Well, everything's fine. Good. Praise the Lord. Click. That was it. <laughs> so it could be costly. But, but the rest of the story is, is uh, what's his name, Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story is, a couple of days later, I got a call from a guy over in Elka that I didn't even know. And he came in. Uh, he saw an ad I had. And they came in. And he bought the three ton of hay that this other guy was going to buy. So, And he wants another six for a second cutting. So the Lord will bless. But uh, who knows? He probably found a cheaper price. <laughs> anyway. Pardon me? Yeah, yeah. He paid me for those first two. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, that's the way it goes, you know, when we make a stand. You might have to make a stand. And it's hard to do. I want to tell you it's hard to do. Sometimes when you're working on a business deal or something, you say, I don't want to blow this sale, or I don't want to do this or that. I don't want to And not that you're ashamed of the Lord, but you're not going to boast about it either. So it's pretty hard. But do they know where you stand, the people you are around you? So what are we dwelling on? What is your mind dwelling on? Is your mind dwelling on the worldly involvement and the pleasures more than it's dwelling on the Lord? Our minds will dwell on, and this is true, I find this for myself, dwell on that which we love the most. And if that's not God, then there may be some adultery going on, spiritual adultery that is. Remember what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 verse 4? He says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Let's not be guilty of letting our affection for our Savior move into second place instead of first. Let's not be guilty of this sin, leaving our first love. Remember, a good marriage relationship takes daily commitment. Now let me mention another way that we can... Either we can break those marriage vows with God by becoming a friend of the world in verse 4, as James says here. Beware of the company that you keep. Beware of the company you keep. Your circle of friends, if they haven't been born again, their values are different from yours. Don't kid yourself. Their values are different. Do not be deceived, Paul writes in, Ephes- in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's not only good advice for our kids or our grandkids. It's good advice for us, too. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's a good verse to memorize. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 33. Now James goes on to say in verse 6 that God stands ready to give more grace to welcome back into fellowship any of his children who have went astray. God's grace is greater than all our sin, as we sang this morning, even our sin of adultery. 
He will forgive you and me for our infidelity with the world. The same grace that brought you into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that brought you into fellowship with God, is able to sustain that fellowship in spite of the pressures that you and I have from this world. However, there is one thing James says that can keep us from receiving God's grace. And that is pride. Pride. God is opposed to proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride. We'll have to die, folks, in order for us to receive this gift of grace. So then, what steps does James give us for ending this war with God when the world has sucked us or pulled us away from our first love? James gives seven steps here for obtaining humility. Seven R's, I would put it here. There was an old saying years ago, somebody told me, it says, as soon as you thought you obtained humility, you've lost it. There's some truth to that, isn't there? So these are all start with an R. You see it in your notes. Step number one, relinquish control of your life. And James puts it this way. Submit, therefore, to God, verse 7. Submit means to take rank under. A proud person will find this the ultimate challenge, to submit to the Lord. Because he or she struggles with being in control, with letting God have control. Everything they do, they're somewhat in control. And it's not only isolated for us men. I've seen women that are really in control, (laughs) even in marriages. The old man thinks he's the control, but he's not. It's that lady there. She's the one that calls the shots. (laughs) I wasn't in here. But anyway. If the believer is unwilling to submit control to God, he will never be open to receive the fullness of God's grace. If your life is surrendered, is your life completely surrendered to the Lord today? Only you know that. To surrender our right to run our own life means to acknowledge God in all our ways that he might direct our steps, as Proverbs 16.9 says. If there is any area in your life that you're holding back from the Lord, there will always be battles with God. Mark it down, folks. I've been there. I gave my life to Jesus one year. It was a whole year later that I surrendered everything. I wanted to walk with the Lord. I said, Lord, you bring them in the farm. I was milking cows at that time. I'll tell them about Jesus. And I did. I told them, I lost a few customers there too, but I told them about Jesus. You know. And I said, I'll do everything I can, but I want to stay here milking cows. I like milking cows, Lord. You understand. It was a battle for a whole, um, just about a year. If I remember, and then I said, okay, Lord, I'll go to Africa. If that's where you want me. No, more or less, that's what I said. I'll do anything you want. And that was the beginning of the end of milking cows, to tell you the truth. But anyway, so, but a beginning of a great ministry. Don't let let that happen to you. Is anything in your life, is God talking to you about, hey, got to give this up too. Just pull out all stops. Step number two. Resist, that's an R, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We need to resist the devil in every area of our lives. To put on the full armor of God, as Paul mentioned in Ephesians 6. Use the shield of faith that you'll be able to quench those fiery darts from the wicked one. Do you feel that you're in a battle with Satan today? James says, resist him and he'll flee from you. God has given us, folks, each one of us, he says it right here in verse 5, his Holy Spirit, his Spirit, so that we can resist the devil. And his Spirit dwells in us. We can call upon that power. When you think of the Holy Spirit, you should think of power. He has given you power to resist. You couldn't do it on yourself, as yourself, until you receive his Spirit. But now you have that. When you receive Jesus, I can resist the devil. 
and he'll flee from you. Step number three towards having a humble heart, restore. Restore your relationship with him as a priority in your life. Restore your relationship. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, he says in verse 8. Folks, this is an invitation as well as a promise. When we have wandered from the Lord, he is inviting us to draw near to him. And he promises us that he will draw near to us. But you notice who has to make the first step? We do. We do. God will never force himself on us. He never has. He never will. He'll never infringe upon our will. Keep it in mind. When you're trying to deal with other people, he will never infringe on their will any more than he will yours. Never. He'll never, he'll knock at the door, but he never kicks it down. He says, I'll wait. I'll wait till they say, come on. Take over, Lord. Take over now. Step number four. Renounce sinful actions. Renounce sinful actions. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Oh, James, he don't pull any punches. I don't think he had a lot of friends, to tell you the truth. <laughs> he is awfully hurt on these guys. He's probably hoping I never see those guys that are scattered. <clears throat> Excuse me. Renounce sins. Cleanse your hands, you sinner. What he says, what he means here, is God wants us to change our outward conduct. He wants us to change our actions. If the inside has changed for the good, the outside should follow suit. Right? You, you remember when John the Baptist started baptizing multitudes? Now we can guess maybe hundreds, maybe thousands. They came down to the river Jordan and baptized as a sign that they repented from their sins. You remember that? I'm sure you do. Luke chapter 3. <clears throat> it says an interesting thing. I don't know if you've ever highlighted this in your Bible, but it jumped out at me years ago. Chapter 3, verses 10. After these people had repented, the soldiers, tax collectors, etc., etc., other people, they came up to John and said, what should we do? Hey, what should we do in line with what we've done? We've repented our Now what should we do? And John says, and excuse me, yeah, John the Baptist, he says, well, you've got to treat other people right. You've got to walk the extra mile with them. You've got to, uh, as soldiers, you've got to not take any bribes, and he, et cetera, et cetera. Read about it. It's pretty interesting. What shall we do? You've got to change your actions now in line with what is happening. You see, if the inside is changed for the good, the outside should. Sometimes it's difficult for others, folks, to tell the difference between the people of God and the people of this world. Remember, the world cannot see if the inside is clean, but they can see if the outside is clean. They can. We're not to hold on to any actions that we know is a violation of God's holy Word. Renounce those sinful actions. And that means language too. If you identify as a born again Christian, start curving that tongue if it gets out of line a little bit when you get hurt or you're excited or whatever. That language should change. They should be able to see. That's not the way I would react if this would have happened to me. I would have had some choice words to say. You don't do that. Renounce those sinful actions. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Is the outside clean? A lot of times in Christians we talk about the inside. Is the outside clean? Without application of God's word, there will be no change. If we don't apply God's word, there will be no change in our behavior. That's why we read God's word, folks. We don't read it to memorize this passage or that one and wear out a few Bibles and all that. I've done it. But unless you find those passages that apply to you and you say, ah, that's me. That's what I need to do. That's what God's talking to me about. You apply it to your life. It'll change your behavior. That's what the Lord wants to have. Then it might not all apply. I'm sure. I was thinking about talking to Lou this morning coming to church. I'm sure that some of this stuff that James is talking about here, you you adulteresses, you're mixed in with the world. I'm sure some of those guys he's writing to, well, that don't apply to me. You know, I'm sure there's some. It just over their head. 
To be honest, they said, don't apply to me. But there's others that hit them right between the eyes. You know, and it should. We should weigh it. Step number five, reject sinful attitudes. Reject sinful attitudes. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, he says in verse 8. Again, I remind you, James is speaking to us as well as to the Christians of his day. They're gone. They went home to be with the Lord. He's talking to us now. Too often, folks, we wink at the sins of the saints today. Too often. Is that bad? <laughs> okay. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, too often we wink at the sins of saints. I find that to be true sometimes. We might even say, well, they're saved. They're going to make it. they got a little rough edges. That's all right. We can get a little too lax. That's winking at their sins. Got a little feedback. You get that? Okay. But Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, the pastor uh, preached on it a while back, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, he says. Behavior. And he goes on and he says, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's what God said. You have to obtain this holiness too, just as I. Again, we notice the term double-mindedness in verse 8. This is the second time that James speaks about being double-minded. Remember chapter 1, verse 8, he says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What does that mean in this particular place, in this context? He means his his affection is divided. He expresses his love for God on one occasion, and he turns about face to show love for the world on other occasions. It depends who he's with. Maybe. Depends where he is. He shows love for the world more than love for God. Double-minded, James says. This kind of attitude will keep the grace of God from flowing into the life of the Christian. We need the blood of Jesus to purify our hearts. Amen to that. We do. We need to do away with double-mindedness, though. We need outward cleansing plus inward purification. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, he says. Step six, react. React to sin with sorrow. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, he says in verse nine. If we were to pull that out of context, we'd say, what is the deal? Isn't Christians, aren't Christians supposed to be joyful? Jesus talked about filling us with joy. But James says, be miserable and mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. This is a direct call, folks, for genuine repentance. Have you ever wept over your own sins? Peter wept over his, didn't he? Of his sin is denial. It says he went out and wept bitterly because of his sin. And David, he did the same thing. After God confronted him, with his sin of adultery, shouldn't we? How we hurt God. Laughter and joy is silenced, are silenced, when we come to grips with what we have really done to God by our sin. And we should be saddened over our sin. Remember what David said to God in Psalm 51 about the joy that he had at one time before his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. He says, restore to me, we even sing a song, restore unto me the joy of my salvation in Psalm 51, 12. Remember, Christian, sin will always drive out joy. It will always drive out joy. It did then, back in David's time, and it does today. If joy has left you, Examine your own heart. Ask God to look into your own heart. David goes on in verse 17. He says, The sacrifices of God 
or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. True repentance is when our laughter is turned to mourning and our joy is turned to gloom, verse 9. What breaks the heart of God should break ours. And that leads us to step number seven in ending the war with God when the world has pulled us away from our first love. Step seven, respond humbly. Respond humbly. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you, James says in verse 10. Someone has calculated that this concept of humbling ourselves before the Lord occurs some 50 times in the Bible, in God's word. I haven't counted them. I'll take their word for it. Look back at some of these uh, great kings or whatever. What was the turning point in their life when they humbled themselves before the Lord? They called for God's mercy. From Nebuchadnezzar to many, that I'm sure you could think of. So what would be the result of humbling yourself before the Lord in true repentance? James says here that God will lift you up. He'll exalt you. It's simple, and yet it's demanding. The way to be exalted or lifted up is to humble yourself before God. Can we pray, Lord, forgive me for wandering away from you, for breaking my vows to you, Lord, for letting the things of this world draw me away from my first love. Lord, please, renew my love for you today. Give me a fresh love. I got once had. You know what that is, Lord. If you can sincerely pray those words or similar ones, then joy will return. And the war will end. Peace will return within your heart. That peace and that joy is left, something's wrong. And when the war ends with God... It will end with God's people. It's guaranteed. I want to sing a song here this morning that pretty well says it. It's a familiar one. It comes from Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son. Testing is on? Not yet. We're familiar with that. I'm sure we are. The prodigal son that uh, he took off. Remember, he wanted tickets and inheritance, and he says, I want my own inheritance, old man. The father uh, represented God, if you looked in that parable. Is this thing on yet? It is? Okay. It represented God. And uh, so we know the story. He took off, and he, he shot the whole lot, more or less. He squandered all the money that the old man had given him. And uh, and then he got right down in the pig pen. You ever been in the pig pen? I mean, the real pig pen spiritually. He got right down in the pig pen, and he said, he said, I don't even like to eat those pods that I'm feeding those lousy pigs. And But I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to the Father, and I'm going to say, Father, forgive me. I, I'm way out of line. And he comes back. And he does it. You know, it's something to say you're going to do something in it, but it's something to follow follow through with it. You ever been in that place? You even told your wife or your husband that you're going to do this or that. and You never quite follow through. It's best you keep your mouth shut, really, and just do it. Anyway, so this son, he comes back and he says, Father, forgive me. I was wrong. So, of course, you know the story. He starts telling Dad he's willing to go on as a hired man, but but Dad interrupts his repentance Peach and he says, "Hey guys," uh, he says to his servants, uh, "Kill it. Go out in the field and kill that calf. Would you? We're going to have a celebration. Put a robe on this kid. Put put some shoes. He lost his shoes. Even put some sandals on his shoe on his feet, and, and, and a ring on his finger. We're going to have a party. And, and so you know the story. He goes. They go start having the big party and the big celebrations going on. And, and the older brother he comes from the field. He, he asks one servant, "What's going on here?" Well, your brother, your, your brother has returned. He might have been gone. He might have been gone for years. And by the way, do you remember the old man? He, he'd go up on that mountain, go up on that hill every day. And he'd say, I think he's coming. I, I think that's my boy. 
he's coming back. And then when he did see him, he just starts running towards him. But anyway, the older son, he, he's not too happy about it. He says, that bum of a kid, he got shot all his money on harlots and stuff. And it never said that in the parable, by the way. It never said that's where he blew his money. Could have been that that was in the mind of the older son. Ooh. And not really didn't happen. Could have been. But he did. He said, I'm not going to join that party. And the father said, come on. Your brother is back. Come on, join the party. And that's the last of the scene, isn't it? Dad's got his arms wide open, and, and his older son just stands there. You've got to be kidding me. I think that's where a lot of Christians are. It's inside. We don't physically a lot of times take off, but inside we can be taken off. I think it fits. father's cry turn your heart toward home turn your heart toward home you've been gone so long turn your heart Father, we just thank you for your tolerance with us, Lord. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you, God, that no matter what we've done, what we've said, God, you take us back. All we have to do is ask. 
What a God. What a God. And you forgive. And you forget when we've confessed. Praise you, God. Because we're not real good at that. We may finally get around to forgiving, but we sure can't forgive. So God, help us to do that. And we pray, Lord, today that perhaps there's someone today that mentally or whatever have wandered a little bit away from you. They don't feel as close to you as they did years ago or last year or last week. Something needs to change. And you're waiting for them to draw near to you before you draw near to them. So my friend, perhaps you want to pray a prayer in your heart this morning. You don't have to pray it out loud. That might express what you are feeling. You could pray, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need a fresh infilling of you today. Forgive me for my sin of compromising with the world. Come in and take control, full control of my life right now. I pray. Thank you, Jesus. If you pray that prayer sincerely from your heart, could you, with everybody else that's looking down, eyes are shut, just slip up your hand. Anyone? Praise the Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Anyone else? Father, we thank you for you. <laughs> what do you mean to us, Lord? You are precious. Forgive us, Lord, when we forget that. We pray you go with each person today. And, Lord, help us to walk a little closer to you today than we did yesterday. Help us to understand you more. Help us, Lord, to know how much you love us. Help us not to be guilty of infidelity by one foot in the world too much. We have to deal with those folks. But, Lord, let us, as we the old saying goes, let us be in the world but not of it. And we pray, oh God, give us the strength to do that. You've given us the strength through your spirit. So go with each person today. Help us to rely on you and your Holy Spirit. We give you the praise this morning for each person here in Jesus' name. Amen.